Well, the congregation of the Lord, turn with me again in Luke chapter 1. And we will read together verse 66. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is a religion not devised by man's imagination or the deceptions of the devil, but by a sure and a special revelation from heaven. It's precisely that which is offensive to the proud and unbelieving world, that it claims for itself divine authority, not through something that we could have come up with, but through a submission unto the revealed will and truth of God. God has spoken. God has acted. He has not only created this world and super uh, ordained all of history, but he himself is an actor in history. And this is what we are confronted with, where we consider this figure who is uh, mentioned here in Luke chapter 1, the man called John the Baptist. John the Baptist is called by the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest of all born of women. He is described by the prophet Isaiah as a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He is, if you like, the hinge, in a sense, upon which Old Testament and New Testament turn, for he is the last of the great prophets of the Old Testament and the first minister of the gospel under the new covenant is important. Important for understanding Christianity. For he is the one through whom our baptism was appointed. As a servant of Christ Jesus, he appointed baptism. He was the one who first began to proclaim the fullness of the revelation of the gospel with the coming of Christ Jesus, with the kingdom of God invading into history, requiring faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in particular, he authenticates the actual identity of the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. Seeing Jesus coming, he proclaims publicly, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. A most important figure. And yet, where we see his beginning in Luke chapter 1, it is not particularly um, glorious or uh, fancy or prestigious. You see, for example, in verse 80 of this chapter, 
The child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. So he did not graduate from the great schools of the Pharisees. He did not seem to have any great qualifications to be a preacher or a prophet. No, he grows up. He grows strong in the spirit. And he uh, spends much of his adolescence and young adulthood in the deserts. Not exactly what you would call a uh, a great recommendation for the proud and rebellious heart of the Jewish audience to which this book of Luke was originally composed. Here is someone who we read later on dresses in hairy camel skins and a leather belt who feasts on, on locusts and honey in the wilderness and spends his time in a remote place communing with God. And yet from this humble beginning was the foundation of the New Testament church. Now, where we would see the record of John the Baptist's birth in verses 57 to 66 what we see is there's a further confirmation of the divine authority of John the Baptist's message. That his birth and his arrival on the scene was attended with glorious, miraculous sign and wonder. Not just any child. Indeed, we could say any child is a miracle. It is God who opens and shuts the womb. Yet this birth of this John the Baptist is remarkable and special. It's with this that I wish to speak of the forerunner's arrival. The forerunner's arrival. That is, of course, the common word for John the Baptist. He's the forerunner, you see. Goes before Christ proclaiming his good news. Well, the forerunner's arrival, we will consider his birth, his naming, and third, some related events. His birth, his naming, and related events. What would you read with me again? Now, Elizabeth's, verse 57. Now, Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her. And they rejoiced with her. This John the Baptist is not the only great servant of the Lord whose birth is specifically noted in the Holy Scriptures. Jeremiah when he was called of the Lord to be a prophet in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4, also was directed to his birth. Jeremiah 1 verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, 
I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. He's trying to assure Jeremiah, you see, that nothing happens by accident. Everything about you has been appointed, ordained, and planned in my decree. No accidents. Nothing takes me by surprise. I will bring about the plan that I have for your life, and nothing can stop it. It's a plan, you see, that uh, was ordained before you were made in the belly. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul speaks about this as another remarkable and special minister of the Lord. Galatians 1 and verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Sometimes we may imagine that if someone grows up to accomplish great things, whether in the church or in society, or wherever we may think about it. We may think, wow, that person must have had a remarkable upbringing. It must have had such wonderful experiences and opportunities. It all just came together. Well, we need to remember that you yourself, you yourself can also do great things with the Lord's grace and help. For where the Lord has called you unto his glory in communion with himself himself in the gospel, there is nothing that can hinder his hand. And this is why John the Baptist's uh, birth is particularly noted. It is noted because before anything else happened in his life, he was already set apart and ordained of God to be a prophet. And we know that, for if we recall earlier on in this series through the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel had said as much in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, where he appears unto Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. The angel of the Lord said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. A remarkable miracle. A woman in her great old age at this point, Zechariah and Elizabeth are far past the years where it would be possible to have a natural child. And yet the angel had said, that she would conceive. And so it was. This old woman began to feel all the symptoms of pregnancy. A child conceived within her of her husband, Zacharias. And now, these nine months later, her time has been fulfilled and she is due to give birth. Here we see a remarkable testimony of the faithfulness of God. Something that we all do well to remember. How quickly we are to look at our own circumstances 
and conclude that God cannot help. We look at the great mass of mess that we create or that has been thrust upon us by the misdeeds of others or through various afflictions and providential circumstances and we think, how is it possible that God could help? Well, I'll tell you, my friend, God is faithful. God is faithful to every word that he has said and where he has promised goodness and grace in his gospel, he will fulfill those promises. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God is faithful. God was faithful to Zacharias and Elizabeth. He will be faithful to you. Not one person has brought their cares to this promising covenant God of salvation and found him to be a liar. He is the God of truth and faithfulness, both now and forever. We see something, I think, quite important here in the name of this baby. You'll notice that uh, the angel had said his name was to be John, was to be John. Well, the Greek word Ioannis or John, it comes from the Hebrew name Jonathan, which means the Lord is gracious or the graciousness or the grace of the Lord. John, it speaks of grace. And so how fitting, how fitting that the beginning of this new covenant era, the New Testament church should be connected to uh, the miraculous birth of a man whose name is Grace. And so it was that he would live up to his name. He would be a partaker of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be a living testimony of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we may take John here as a stand-in for grace Itself, all grace communicated by a loving father unto needy sinners. Perhaps we take the point uh, as a way of application. Suppose you would find yourself in the position of poor Zacharias and Elizabeth in this sense. You have waited long for the Lord's grace to be revealed in your life. You've waited long and years and years, and yet you have to say that you've seen nothing in it. You've seen nothing of the grace of Jesus Christ, not of his love, not of his tenderness, not of his glory. You see nothing in it. Maybe you can go through the motions and you can come to a church service like this, but you look around at others and they seem to really connect with the Lord. You don't relate to that. You've never experienced that. And so you may conclude, well, grace has not been born in my soul. So it is that the promise of God, it lies there in the dust. I have nothing to do but to despair and to flee from the presence of God. Oh, do not be so hasty, dear friend. 
I would put to you that there is no grounds for despair. You see, the Lord Jehovah, he heard the cries of Zacharias and Elizabeth throughout all those long years, yearning for a child. So also he would hear your cries in his own good time and pleasure. You see, he's a sovereign God. He does not operate according to your schedule, your parameters. Would it not be fitting that the Lord should have waited all these years and yet reveal himself even now, even today? Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no Light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Do not despair if you have not yet tasted of the grace of God. There is yet grace in the Lord. There is more grace in him than there is sin and unbelief in you. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, but receive him even now and know yourself to be born again unto a lively hope, to have grace born in your soul. Well, we've seen some of the applications from these earlier verses, but obviously the direct application would be towards childbirth. Childbirth. So you'll... Notice again, verses 55 to 57 to 58. Now Elizabeth full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her and they rejoiced with her. You see, whenever the Lord gives a child, it is a great mercy. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that even we're entitled to, that we should have children. Where God gives a child to a father and a mother, that is a unique blessing, for he opens and closes the womb. It says in Psalm 113, verse 9, he maketh the barren woman to keep house into a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. And so all of the relatives, all of the cousins, as it's translated here, they come alongside Elizabeth and they rejoice with her. For the Lord has done something remarkable. Even after all these years, a woman that they thought had never had the opportunity to have children now has children. A unique mercy, a unique blessing is shown here. Rejoicing is found in the family of Elizabeth and Zacharias. And I think we would just want to dwell upon that and think about it and consider how little is thought of this blessing of children in our society today. Children, I think we would have to acknowledge, are hated by the society today. Yes, of course, you might find some who would say, I'd love to have children. It would be a great delight to have children. But for all that, you would find many, many in our society for whom having children is a burden. 
It doesn't fit in with their lifestyle. It doesn't fit in with their priorities. It doesn't fulfill, uh, fit in with their career prospects or their relationship plans and so forth. And so they do not receive this gift of children as a blessing. You have people, for example, who would render themselves sterile and infertile voluntarily, not because of some medical problem or something else or providential circumstances that just make it utterly impossible. No, but because they want to have more funds, more resources, they want to live a particular standard of life. And so it is that men and women, through chemicals or through other means, will ensure that they will not receive the blessing of children. And so it is that we have things detached and separated which God has bound together when a man and woman come together. That is to be in the bond of marriage. It is to be in a holy covenant before God. And where man and woman are intimate and enjoy one another sexually, that is to produce life and blessing. It is to produce a heritage. It is to produce goodness and blessing in their lives. In Psalm 127, verse 3, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. But they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. To have children is to make you strong. It is to increase your influence. It is to magnify your impact. It is to create a legacy. It is a way in which you manifest dominion upon the earth. To have children is a great blessing. And this is not something that even should have to be taught and persuaded from the word of God. It is a natural principle. Even animals understand that there is uh, something of reproduction that is built into their very being. How much more those who are in the image of God, that they would be used to bring forth other image bearers of God into the world. And yet, we live in a degenerate age in which these things are not only forgotten, but actively despised. And so we have a generation that would have their name perish from the earth and not even think of it. Not again through any um, necessity, but through their own willful desire not to have children. And I would put to us that we, if we are to be true Christians, if we are to live in harmony with the will of God, let us give no place to this ungodly thinking. Jesus said, where you have received a, a little child, you have received him. You see, how you treat the littlest among the human society, that is how you treat Christ. How you treat the most vulnerable, this is how you are treating 
Christ and how much more within the household of faith. Even if it be the case that God has not given you children or at this stage of life you do not have children, how glorious it is to be able to invest in little lives which the Lord has entrusted to you, whether through church or through extended family or through friendships. Who knows what the Lord will do with our children? Who knows what great legacy may be established? And we have the opportunity to come alongside and share the wisdom and goodness of God in our families, in our churches, in our communities. Let us treasure children as a heritage of the Lord. I know this as an application as well. You see how all the relatives here, they are united in a joy that is experienced by Elizabeth. They share in it as though it is their own joy. And the angel actually spoke about that too back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 14. And thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth. So the angel prophesied that many would rejoice, and so it is. Actually, where you uh, look at the Greek of verse 58, where it says how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, it's actually the Greek word for magnified. So they were actively encouraged for how it was that the Lord had magnified his character and his faithfulness in the life of their dear relative. Now, I think what we have here is a general principle that where we have our hearts rightly ordered by God's grace, we will delight in the successes and the blessings of others as though they were our own. And indeed, where it comes to our families, perhaps that's, that's a very natural thing. You see that someone who is... Um, connected to you by blood, and you see how they are doing well and, and how they are being blessed of the Lord. And isn't it natural just to rejoice in that? Not to see it as you losing something, but as someone gaining something, someone who is precious to you. Well, the general principle is that, that ought to be our attitude even beyond our family, but also towards those in our church family, where one as experienced blessing, we are to see that as our blessing, but also the opposite principle, where someone in our church family is enduring burdens and sorrows and hardships, that ought to affect us in the reverse way. And you see it very biblically spelled out in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. This really ought to be a principle not only among natural families, but the spiritual household of faith. The body of Christ ought to be united in this, in bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing in one another's blessings. There ought to be a sensitivity and an, and an interest. How are we doing? How is my brother and sister in the Lord doing? Are they receiving blessing in their life? Let me encourage them more and rejoice with them. 
Are they suffering? Are they suffering? Does that matter to me? Am I reaching out to them? Am I bearing their burden with them? Am I striving in prayer with the Lord that they be sustained in their suffering? Here we see another valid application from these early verses. Now, we will speak not only about his birth, but also his naming. His naming. And this is obviously a pivotal part of the passage. Or you see in verse 59. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called his name Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they, they made signs to his father how he should have him called, and he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. Now, a few things about this whole event. You'll notice that it coincides with circumcision. Circumcision, which is connected with the naming of a child. So, Think back, think back to the text that we've considered a number of times last year, Genesis 17. Maybe you can turn there with me. Genesis 17 and verse 12, where the giving of circumcision as a sign of the Lord's covenant of grace was given to Abraham. And there we read in Genesis 17, verse 12, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or brought or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that child shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So the sign of the Lord's gracious covenant was to be given not only to faithful Abraham, where he confessed his faith in the Lord, but also with all his household. The sign of the covenant given not only to the believer, but to the believer's household, to all his male children and also the male slaves that were in his household. And this was to be given on the eighth day, not to wait until they could make their own confession of faith, no, Eight days from when they were born. And it's repeated in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 13. In the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, you know, as our text also makes reference to that, the eighth day. And, you know, there's different theories as to why the eighth day. Now, there is actually a medical explanation, which I'll quote now from a medical website and says there actually is an astonishing wisdom in this that it would be on the eighth day that a, a baby boy would have the uh, 
the cut of circumcision in his flesh. Quote, it is of significant medical importance that male circumcision be carried out on the eighth day after birth, since the level of vitamin K is highest on that this day, and vitamin K plays a pivotal role in regulation and control of the important clotting factors in the coagulation pathways that helps in stopping bleeding. And so some have argued that there's wisdom in that, that it has to be on the eighth day for that reason. Others have, have pointed out that there's actually something unique throughout all the Old Testament passages about the eighth day in particular. The eighth day, of course, follows the first day of the week after a complete cycle of seven. So the seventh day being what we call Saturday, and the first day being what we call Sunday. Many have pointed out there seems to be an anticipation, an anticipation of the first day of the week with the coming of the new covenant and the Lord Jesus rising again on the first day and making this the day of worship. Some have, have so argued. But in particular, the eighth day is important because as they receive circumcision, that is when the child receives his name from his father. The father is the head of the home, is entrusted to bestow a legacy and an inheritance to his children. And so he bestows their name, which is connected to their legacy and to their inheritance. You see it in Genesis 21, verses 3 and 4. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And, you know, there's a, uh, an interesting connection between this, often in Christian uh, traditions like our own, that celebrate um, the, uh, the glorious sacrament of baptism by bestowing that to ourselves and to our children in keeping with the pattern of circumcision. Often it's that baptism service in which the name of the child is set forth and publicly declared. And so, for example, children, there is one catechism that begins with, this is the very first question, what is your name? Well, that's a pretty good catechism. You probably could even answer that. But then the second question is, when did you receive your name? And you would say, upon your baptism. So those two things connected here. And I think it also would show to us that there is an important uh, weight and importance when this, about this whole matter of names. We take care to raise our children in the household of faith, to ensure they receive the sign of the covenant. Well, also, if we are raising covenant children, we ought to give some thought and carefulness as the heads of household, how it is that our children should be named. John Calvin uh, wrote here, Though we must not imagine that there is any sacredness in names, yet no judicious person will deny that in this matter believers ought to make a godly and profitable selection. They ought to give their children such names as may serve to instruct and admonish them, and consequently to take the names of holy fathers for the purpose of exciting their children 
to imitate them rather than adopt those of ungodly persons, end quote. And I hope that many of you can relate to that. Many of you, I'm sure, have names, whether your first name or your middle name, that come from the Bible. Isn't that not a conviction for you? That you ought to emulate all the good qualities of that person from the Bible. Or if you're named after a relative, a godly relative who served and knew the Lord, don't you have that desire to live up to their name? These are things that we ought to think about, even as older persons, about ourselves, but also give consideration to where we are called upon to name our children. So here we have those uh, things we may learn from his naming in general. But in here, we see that there was a dispute, a dispute connecting with this uh, boy's name in particular. For the great number of them, they wanted to name the child Zacharias, Zacharias, after their relative. The priority for them was tradition. Their tradition was to name someone after their relative. Not a wrong tradition in its place. But they wanted to overrule the clear commandment of God given through the angel. That was obviously what... uh, The woman Elizabeth, the boy's mother, was so concerned about. Probably Zacharias had told her about the word from the angel. And so she's concerned. I want to uphold what the Lord has commanded. I don't don't care about tradition so much as what the Lord has commanded. A good lesson. A godly woman here. What God commands is elevated above even the expectations of family and friends and anyone else. It's God's word that you'll be held accountable for. But here, there was a requirement, a requirement that he be named John. And so they go to Zacharias, and you you know how it went, of course. Zacharias had been made mute, unable to speak, and deaf, and deaf since he'd encountered that angel. And so they actually have to make sign language in order to get his attention. They have to make motion for him to come over here. And and they sort of eventually get through to him. We want to know what you want to name the child. And so he takes a tablet and writes, his name is John. He doesn't say, you notice, his name will be John. Or I choose to name him John. He says, his name is John. The God of heaven is already determined the matter. and, And everyone marvels at this. Well, we've seen his birth and we've seen his naming, but I wish to also speak about these related events. And these are just those things that bring to a conclusion this portion of scripture. You know, I wonder if it had really weighed upon the conscience of the Zacharias. You notice how the words of the angel, when he pronounced that he would be deaf and dumb, may have echoed in his mind throughout all these months. Luke 1, verse 20. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. It's much to me fear that there are many Christians today who because They have not true faith in the word of God. They are rendered dumb in a manner 
similar to Zacharias. They do not believe the word of God to the full in an uncompromising way. And so they have no witness. They have nothing to say. But where we have that full sense of the truth of God, that it overpowers us and consumes our heart, mind, and soul, we but must speak. And so we see here in these verses as well, in verse 64, and his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God and fear came on all that dwelt round about them and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea and all they that heard laid hold laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. This is a glorious way in which this ministry of this man should begin, by a sure testimony, but the hand of the Lord was with him. This is what we also ought to desire, that sure token of God's presence and blessing in our midst. Isn't that what we desire would be echoing out throughout our community, throughout the city of London? God is in the midst of that people. God is working in those people. God is saving souls. God is magnifying his name. Don't we yearn for revival in our generation? Don't we yearn that the Lord would give us a sure token of his presence with us. Well, may it begin with you and I, my friend. May we pray this prayer in the words of Psalm 51, verse 15. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Amen.